0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to
1: Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga.
0: And I'm your host, Paul Keelan. And this week, we're going to do 1994's epic Angels in the Outfield. So 1994 was an amazing year for sports movies, particularly for children's sports movies. So I'm just going to take us back to set the scene. We're going to go to July 15th, 1994 and a few of the other films that came out around the same time as Angels in the Outfield.
1: All right, so one of the first ones that stands out to me that came out around that same time was True Lies. It actually came out the same day as Angels in the Outfield. So we couldn't get two different types of movies. So I imagine a lot of parents would to go see True Lies and probably drop out their kids to see Angels in the Outfield for that day. Uh, the next one, another one that came around that same time would be Next Karate Kid. And then Little Big League was also in theaters around that era.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Little Big League came out a few weeks later. Forrest Gump even came out just a few weeks before. And this couldn't be more irrelevant to sports movies, but Chunking Express came out the day before. And a month later, we get It Could Happen to You, starring Kevin Costner, who was probably the most iconic sports movie actor, especially of this time, having done Bull Durham and Field of Dreams. So it was a big time for movies, right? We had Forrest Gump, which was a huge hit. And we had a lot of sports movies around the same time The Next Karate Kid and The Little Big League. We're going to get into a little bit of the cross comparison between Angels and the Outfield and the Little Big League, because they're both centered around child actors and about Major League Baseball. And so a lot of the reviews at the time were uh, critical of one or the other. They favored either Angels with its sweeping sentimentality or the Little Big League with its uh, more adult-like and interesting analysis of the business side of baseball through the lens of a young boy. So this is definitely a nostalgic time for the both of us. We both are 90s kids. And Two weeks after Angels in the Outfield came out, there was the what is now infamous film, North. This is the film with Elijah Wood. I don't know if you remember it, but he sues his parents and takes off around the world to find better parents. How this film is set up is he literally gets a court order that if he finds better parents in, I believe it's like 90 days, he can then live with those parents instead of his own. It's completely absurd, but it really takes us back to this state of cinema where these films about kids having autonomy and freedom like we wouldn't believe were the most popular thing. And this conceit about what it would be like for a kid to actually have grown-up powers, to have real choices and a real personality and control over his life was at the center of the cultural zeitgeist in the early 90s. There was just so many films, right? Richie Rich and Little Rascals and as I said, North or Home Alone all really set the stage for what was a renaissance of kids' movies based around kids, treating kids seriously and extremely energetic. What are some of your favorite kids-based movies that aren't only sports movies in the 90s?
1: The one there was Little Rascals. It was one I used to love to watch as a kid. That was definitely one that had all those childlike sensibilities to it. Dennis the Menace. So you mentioned Home Alone. To me that ties into Dennis the Menace really well, because it's kind of like a higher stakes version of Home Alone, where he's protecting his neighbor. We have that scene with Christopher Lloyd's character coming to rob him. Um, that scene always stands out to me as like a hyperized version of Home Alone, where it has all those
0: same dangers. In Home Alone, I I would say, is probably the most popular in terms of cult classics to come out of this era. Another thing that fascinated me while doing research about Angels in the Outfield, and that I'm a little bit ashamed about not knowing, was this was actually a remake of a 1951 film. Have you seen the original 1951 film?
1: No, and I had no idea like you that this was a remake at all. I thought this was its own original story entirely built around the California Angels. So to find out it had something to do with like Pittsburgh Pirates, maybe you kind of want to actually watch it because I feel like Angels as an overarching theme and as a device, it'd be interesting to see how this works with the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates.
0: Yeah, it's a little weird because the mascot has nothing to do with the Pirates. And you think that the Angels is such an intrinsic part. The fact that the team is named the Angels and it's called Angels in the Outfield. But from what I read, the original is actually kind of a very heartwarming film as well and has a lot of depth. A few people likened it to It's a Wonderful Life. is one of the all-time American classics. It is a film that has a lot of religious undertones and a lot to say about faith. And Angel's Nailfield also actually has a lot to say about faith, but in a very secular way, in a very Disney way. It's more about family being uh, look, looking out for one another and having hope or optimism about the future. Whereas this one had to do more about having a connection to the metaphysical and being doubted for that connection. So the film was about the grumpy coach, gruffy McGovern, uh, an orphan as well. So they did get the orphan in the Angels in the Outfield from 1994. The message was a little bit different. The main theme of that film from what I read was that being mean is extremely corrosive. They do touch on this theme a little bit, I would say, uh, especially with George Knox, the coach of Angels in the Outfield. But in the original, it sounds like Gruffy McGovern dreamly mean, and it's centered pretty much around him. He's the one who hears the angels in his head, and people are considering him to be insane. And I look forward to doing, maybe we'll do a bracket of films in the near future about originals that have been yeah. turned into remakes or sequels, and we'll explore it at that time. So... One of the most interesting things about Angels in the Outfield is how coincidental, with air quotes, coincidental, how timely it was with the purchase of the California Angels at the time by Disney. That was another thing that seemed very strange to me as a kid. I knew they were owned by Disney suddenly, and there was this film, and suddenly the line between sport and cinema blurred for me. Did you have any weirdness in your relationship to the way that there was a real, actual professional team. That was kind of a
1: draw to the movie for me, being a baseball fan. I used to be on like a little league league team called the, the California Angels. So, I'd have like a little California Angels hat. So, there's already a draw to like Major League Baseball that made me want to see it for that. And I thought it was really cool that it's an actual team. Like the team you watch on TV is the fictional team you're going to be watching in the movie. You know, the corporate connection was kind of lost on me between Disney and that. But the connection between the marketing, between the MLB and getting, the, getting me into the seat, that was definitely very strong.
0: Yeah, it definitely has a pull, right? And suddenly there's a imaginative element to watching the Angels that kind of adds to every experience as a. Southern California, knowing that they are this team that had a film based on them. I remember when the Angels ended up winning the World Series, and I still had it in my mind that Angels in the outfield was the film that kind of set the stage for this team. That is actually not true. The California Angels were around since I believe the 60s or before they were owned by Gene Autry. It was a strategic move by Disney who simultaneously made their first moves to buy the California Angels at the same time they were commissioning this film. So they were very entrepreneurial in their approach of getting both a film and a major league team at the same time so that both would benefit. The film would give them more interest in the team team and the team hopefully would give them more interest in the film especially if they could cross market things like jerseys and so forth Mm -hmm. and around the same time they were approved in 1996 by the MLB to be a team and they got hundred million dollars for renovation of the stadium and really tried to make the connection I read the owner came out to the first press conference wearing angels in the outfield movie paraphernalia and attire on I also read that Walt Disney himself was long before they had bought the California angels on the board of the California Angels so they've already had ties in but now they own the team and they can definitely have the power to pull the strings to do that cross-marketing so now that we've gotten a little bit of the backstory of the corporate side and how they cross-marketed let's get into the movie and let's start with this cast this cast is probably top to bottom the best cast I mean it's debatable but the best cast of a 90s kids Disney sports movie
1: this might be the best cast when you go look back and see where they at today. You know what I mean, like, um, yeah, I think if I could kind of qualify it that way, when I mean, we look at like use the term like the best cast, I'd look at I think this one's cool looking at where all these actors are going to kind of name where they're where they end up here and how minuscule they were to like the role the role in this movie for the most part, some of the bigger names.
0: What's amazing is that this basically broke Joseph Gordon-Levitt's career. It also really solidified a few other actors like Danny Glover, who was already a big actor. And he especially was known for the Lethal Weapon* series. Then we had like Tony Danza, who was huge on TV in the late 80s and 90s. And we have some of those really small roles, some of the tiniest roles, where they barely even say a word of dialogue in the whole film, performed by some of the biggest actors today. And I'll let you introduce some of these actors that you might be shocked if you're listening, to hear that yeah. they were in this film, especially if you haven't seen it in a while.
1: All right, so you already mentioned uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. i almost dropped the first big name, and I forgot he was in this movie at all. And so I got to think it was Matthew McConaughey, who plays Ben Williams in this. I mean, I know him from Days and Confused is what I still associate with him. I know he's won Oscar since then for like Dallas Buyers Club and in Wolf of Wall Street. He's huge, you know known for that, and of course all those car commercials he's on all the time. I Always see those. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when you when you actually see him in this movie. Doesn't he just sound like the McConaughey? You know?
0: Yeah, definitely. He's still same old Matthew McConaughey. I believe the year before he was in Dazed and Confused, doing all right, all right, all right, or yeah. <laughs> whatever you know, picking up girls in Dazed and Confused. That was a much bigger role in my opinion than here in Angels, where he basically takes the back seat on the team. He has some of the biggest plays so some of the scenes where the angels really come in and make a spectacular the trailer shots
1: all the stuff you see like in the trailer you know the, the, he definitely has those
0: for sure definitely some of those scenes where the like i said the angels come in and they grab the player and assist them in this very miraculous way that defies physics the trailer shots as you said are surrounded around um math but in terms of dialogue he has what three or four lines and there's another actor that really surprised me i never would have thought that he was in this film even though i had seen it because he was such a small role and i was such so young when i saw this film at first that by the time his career broke i didn't make the connection that's adrian brody right Mm -hmm. adrian brody's in the film and once again i don't think adrian brody says what two lines three lines and he plays danny hammering who's basically just a benched batter He has a few moments where the Angels give him a massage. Suddenly, he goes up as a pinch hitter, even though he's the worst batter on the team and pinches for the best batter on the team. And of course, he scores a run. But overall, he's kind of a nobody. So we have both Matthew McConaughey and we have uh, Adrian Brody. And neither have a significant role by any means. Uh, In fact, Matthew McConaughey talks a little bit about this role in some of his interviews recently. And he talks positively about it. He says he made, I think, $48,000 just playing baseball and he was having the time of his life. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of funny to think about how he'd be so stoked on $48,000 to be in a film where he's very, very marginal in terms of where he's credited. I'm sure he makes millions per film now. You definitely see that he was always kind of lighthearted, loves sports, loves to be around sports. That's why you see him at all the Texas Longhorn games. I could imagine. Matthew McConaughey out there having a great time shooting this film, right, with the wires because he has all those great. He's an outfielder, and the wires are always picking him up so that he can soar and make this catch basically flying in the air. And it's
1: like the highlight. Of the, it's like the callus of the movie too. He does get a pretty important scene when you break it
0: down. Like a uh... Definitely. He has a very important physical scenes, right? Yeah. I would say that the most memorable scenes, like I said, with the angels are him. But you think of Matthew McConaughey, you think of his personality. You think of his laid back, southern draw, have a good time. And that's not expressed or articulated here through dialogue in any way, yet somehow he still exudes that. Just being Matthew McConaughey. It does help that I know him now. So immediately I see Matthew McConaughey and all the connotations that I have mm. with Matthew McConaughey are completely projected onto him.
1: It's kind of true, though, because like you said, his explanation gives like a cool guy explanation for how the angels happened. I don't remember word by word. I wish I had written on the quote, but it's very McConaughey-esque. Like, I felt like they just got some wings and they held me up and I caught the ball. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you know, terrible McConaughey impression, but you know, like it's, it's in there.
0: Yeah, just so nonchalant and casual and yet likable his essence, right? There's something about the big actors, like the iconic actors that have this essence that almost becomes tangible. Like it's a personification of a mood and a tone and an approach to like life. Like it's almost an existential definition. Yeah, and he always exudes that practically even when he does weird roles or very exploratory roles like Dallas Buyers Club. So now I'm going to return to the cast because it's just such a great cast. We're going to spend probably 10 minutes on this cast but there's also Dermot Mulroney who is not so big today but at that time he was opposite of Julia Roberts as a love interest in My Best Friend's Wedding and he was a regular on Friends. And he was in a lot of films, even in the 2000s. One of those faces that you just know when you see it. But besides his big romantic uh, leading roles in the early 90s, very much a bit actor. And you have Neil McDonough, who is still around today. Right, you recognize that right away, I'm sure, because you're you're big on watching all the Marvel films. And yes, yeah,
1: I did recognize him from um, as a Captain America. Actually, our um, role I remember him most from though is Walking Tall, the remake with The Rock. He plays the villain in that, and I always yeah. liked him in that villain. Always, some funny you mentioned Captain America. Is that time I thought he could be a cool Captain America. Obviously, got yeah, a different one. But um, <laughs> all those roles you listed off, though, they're all, you know, he's always a hardened veteran kind of dude, usually. And this one, he's a complete goofball. And so I did a double take when I saw him this time on this. I completely didn't miss that connection. Like you said, when you go back and watch this, I did not realize that was him.
0: He is not only that hardball veteran type, but he's kind of perfect for that Aryan villain it's funny that in here he's not the villain he's literally the buffoon um, mm-hmm. like a likable buffoon Wit Bass is his name and he's a relief picture hilariously inept he has a very exaggerated pitching style that's silly and we'll get into that later when we talk about some of the quirks of the players on the team but he almost plays opposite of his typecast to me which is the blonde haired kind of square-faced villain who's really like creepy usually a Russian or <laughs> um some sort of Eastern European, he's just tailor-made. If you look at him and see a picture of him, you'll know exactly what I mean. And that takes us to our next actor or my personal favorite in the film, I think. And that's Taylor, that's Taylor Negron, who plays David Montana. I absolutely loved his role in this film, even though it's so absurdly infantile as an adult to watch his role. And basically what he is, is he is the PR guy who has to take care of our two main actors, which is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as aforementioned, and as we'll talk about more, and Milton Davis Jr., who plays J.P., and that is my other favorite character, we're going to get much deeper into JP as well. But I would say for me, my two favorite characters in this film are JP and David Montana. And all he does is basically get nacho cheese and soda spilled on him and constantly has to one up whatever protective equipment he's wearing, right? He's just so likable and funny. And he's mm-hmm. so perfect for exaggerating his acting and making it really hammy in a way that's slapsticky enough to appeal to a eight-year-old's brain. I'll let you introduce the villain of this film. He's a regular in Disney films. He's another great, great character actor.
1: Yes, he's an absolute staples of the bad guys of Disney 90 films. So we have J.O. Sanders playing Rancher Wilder. Ranch Wilder, excuse me our announcer who has a rivalry with a Coach Coach Knox. Um, he's also in another movie we're going to be talking about, probably in our next episode. Uh, he's a coach in the Big Green where he plays Jay Huffer, coaches the All Black Knights, walks around with a sword in that one on a kid's soccer field, right? Classic. Uh, he's also in the and Drive, 16 Candles, Splash, and Last Boy Scout. You recognize him from a lot of stuff, but I think so, he might be one of my favorite actors in this one.
0: Good good call. I mean, to be honest, rewatching watching it, J.O. Sanders, flat out my favorite. Oh, yeah. And watching the Big Green, once again, flat out my favorite. He is amazing in these films. I am dying every time he comes on the screen. And I couldn't help, especially recently watching The Big Green again, noticing how much He kind of looks like Will Ferrell and how much some of his mannerisms Uh. influences perhaps of Will Ferrell. I don't know if Will Ferrell really was influenced by him, but he's just sort of this like precursor to Will Ferrell. He almost set the stage for Will Ferrell, especially if you think of Will Ferrell kicking and screaming. He's just so hilariously comedically evil, especially in the big green. Mm -hmm. And every line he says had me roaring. And in this film, he plays actually a little more of a believable evil character. He's not so cartoonish, but he's really good in this film as well.
1: Yeah, it's also because this one, I think, built up a good... One of the reasons I liked him most, him and George Knox actually like that dynamic they have on the screen. Their rivalry from player versus ex-players you know, and their rivalry extends to their professional world now.
0: I think yeah. that's
1: built up kind of well in this movie.
0: Definitely. Ranch Wilder and George Knox are the real rivalry at the heart of the film. One of the things I noticed about this film that was kind of interesting was that they never really vilified any of the other players on the teams or anybody else. The only villain in this film is the broadcaster, right? The announcer for the angels. That's kind of an interesting (laughs) variation of a sports movie, right? You don't get like the... Disney evil teams that are always dressed in all black, that always have all blonde hair, right? I'm thinking the Mighty Ducks. Two, we have Iceland, right? With the slick hair, the all black jerseys. Ducks one, you have the Hawks. Hawks. Yep, and you have the big green, which is the Knights. But in this one, you have none of those evil, archetypal, probably Scandinavian or Eastern Russian based teams, or at least they have that genetic code because they're always peach white with blonde hair. And here you have no bad guys. You only are rooting for the angels because they're this hapless, luckless, ragtag bunch of professional losers who, with the assistance of extraterrestrial and biblical figures, come and make an amazing comeback over the course of the season. So, you have a very different narrative in this film, in which you're not so much rooting against a team, you're only rooting for a team to find itself. And kind of cheat, which is another very strange thing. Uh, It
1: shouldn't be kind of. They are cheating in this movie. This is a movie that glorifies cheating left or right.
0: (laughs) It definitely glorifies cheating and that's another thing that we have to touch upon it's the steroids and that narrative in major league baseball and how it parallels this film what do you think this says about baseball or how does he think this parallels and has a conversation with baseball and all the scandals that have happened
1: now i think as you watch it it's it's clashing like the message of the film is kind of clashing with what we know about baseball today. Like you said, the steroids scandal—the most recent one I think would be because we talk about cheating. I'll steer from steroids. You can use like the Astros cheating thing from the last World Series, right? That was a big scandal, right? It's huge. Like the fact that they're cheating—you know—they didn't get really punished, et cetera, et cetera. This one has a similar stage where a team's caught cheating. They can't prove they're caught cheating, right? But like. They're, they're not going to wipe it under the table either. Like Coach Knox kind of stands up. He's like, no, man, I'm your coach. You know, like, Angels are not. Like, they stand up for him. So it's, it's one of those things. It's kind of, uh, I guess, maybe still a little, I guess it's kind of realistic. Those, those players are still down to stand up for George Knox, even though he was still cheating for them. And I think the Astros have shown they're still down to stick together too. So I don't know. I think in that regard, it might be a little, it might work.
0: <laughs> Do you think that George Knox was cheating for them or was he just tapping into superstition? I think that comes down oh. to the big
1: I think once he starts believing in those angels, he's kind of cheating. <laughs> like, a good portion of the film is him doubting it and have to watch it again to see whether or not he actually believes in the angels because there's no confirmation of that. We get good lines like, you really do believe in angels, don't you, Roger? You're not crazy, okay. Like, Which to me is kind of like a... Implication like this might really work kind of thing. It's dope too, right? So then it goes into that again the idea of when it all costs Yeah, so I think I think he's cheating
0: <laughs> Okay, so if he believes in the angels and the angels are aiding them to success What should he do to stop? the Angels, if they are beyond his control, right? He shouldn't have control over the Angels as a mortal human being. What's his other option? That's a
1: good point, because that's the only thing that our film never answers, is why the Angels? Why is this team that chose the one to get help? Which I think you bring up a good point. If you're selected to get some random assistance, are you obligated to ask if everyone else got that assistance? Vice versa, right? That's kind of like the fair weather play. If the the weather's helping you out, it's not necessarily hurting the other team. That's not necessarily cheating, right? you got a pitcher that plays better in the the rain. That's kind of
0: way of looking at it too it's not like their independent agency has done something intentionally to cheat right the astros had a scheme they had a strategy where i only... kind of want,
1: sorry i kind of want to repeat what i just said because i totally forgot that george knox kind of goes and out and and plucks the lucky charm out and brings it into the club so in that regard he's kind of kind of searching for it too
0: he is definitely searching for that good luck but Lucky charms are such a common thing. And even the angels two years later had the rally monkey. Do you remember the rally monkey? No. The rally monkey was a huge deal. And it actually started, I read, from a game in which they played a clip of another great sports film, Ace Ventura. So they showed this clip of Ace Ventura with the iconic monkey from that film. And in this game, the Angels had this great comeback. And I guess word sped around that this monkey helped them out and it turned into their rally monkey. And the rally monkey actually became such a big deal that by the time they were in the playoffs, when they were playing the Giants... It was a national sensation. The announcers had picked up on it. It was part of the conversation. Just like the Boston Red Sox and their curse, right? You don't watch the Red Sox in the early 2000s in the playoffs without hearing about the curse over and over. And so this rally monkey was just this huge superstitious thing where they had marketed it as well. And they had a, they went out and hired at least a white-haired monkey. And the fans had different rally monkey gear and paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. So it turns out for the Angels, it wasn't a religious, just deity, but actual monkey. About is um, opposite. I think of a deity as you could think of. Think of superhuman or angelic, and you think of human as more primal and simian. You get this kind of very funny range of monkey angel duality. I don't know. I thought that was really funny. The
1: whole range of evolution. Yeah,
0: right. Kind of human evolution, right? An angel is going beyond your humanity to something higher, and you think of a monkey as a reversion. Mm-hmm. Not trying to diss monkeys, but you think of it as sort of a recessive process in an evolutionary sense. Yeah, that's just a funny incident. And in fact, there are superstitions throughout sports, there are so many superstitions themselves. So like baseball has it. superstitions that are just similar to all of baseball. And then you have like Michael Jordan, with his choice of wearing blue UNC shorts. Mm -hmm. Or you have Patrick Waugh, who always had these crazy conversations with the goalposts. (laughs) You had Jason Giambi and his teammates who would wear gold thongs to bust out of slumps. There's all sorts of crazy superstitions. They're preposterous. Yet they do something psychologically. They mean something to the player. And I would never call it superstition cheating. So I actually would side on the opposite end and say that though the angels help them, And though he did basically pay for two young foster home kids uh, to have front row seats and he made his PR guy serve them every game as if they were kings and he listened to them as as they gave him really absurd advice from a practical standpoint. He was not cheating because it was just divine intervention at its purest form.
1: When I say cheating. I feel like he cheated humanity because he didn't report to the rest of us that angels are sitting here in a baseball field playing baseball. They're not helping anyone else out here. He should have been. He should have been on that a little more vocally.
0: What I just don't get. I, there's a few things about the whole angel conceit I don't get. And I'm going to pick this apart, even though I know it's...
1: It's, it's worth picking apart, though. because It's part of the fun of watching the movie, I think, even as you watch it. And even yeah. as a kid, I think it's part of the fun is, why these angels? Why this team? And it actually kind of raises a lot of giant questions for a kid as you're watching it. And a lot of those questions go back to that prayer scene in this
0: movie. Oh, they all go back to the prayer scene, right? Um, yeah. Kind of a quasi-Pinocchio illusion where he looks up to the sky and a star twinkles. Mm-hmm. And he prays that the angels win the pen. So yeah, after he makes his wish to the stars, right? Suddenly the angels actually start to appear and JP has a winning ticket and has a photo shoot with George Knox and George Knox over a course of events realizes that they are this good luck charm and that he might actually see angels and the fact that the adult coach of this team believes them in just a few scenes is pretty amazing, but let's just leave that to the side for now. They end up going to all the games and you start to think as an adult, why haven't the angels, if they're omniscient or if they have a level of omniscience, really investigated this prayer at all and realized that his dad is kind of a scumbag who is simply being snarky with him by saying that he would return if the angels won the pennant. So why aren't the angels... Having a better screening process in how they go about the tasks or assignments they pick up, they've got to have a pretty big list of demand. They, I'm sure, have to prioritize different tasks. Yet they help this boy who has a crappy dad get his wish. That is an ill-fated wish for a baseball team to win the pennant. It's so funny if you really break it down and think about it.
1: Yeah, it's almost like the mission should have been to prepare him for that. You know, when he gets let down in court, (laughs) that would have been a much better use of their time to help this team win a pennant. I feel Roger would have benefited a little bit more from from that, but yeah, you have absolutely good points
0: about that. And now I'm going to stick up for it because we understand this is fiction. We understand Mm -hmm. this is a fable. We understand that this is all metaphor for something bigger. And it really has to do with foster kids needing faith, needing hope. And Maggie, who is a really great character in this film. Uh, We haven't talked about Maggie yet, but Maggie is one of my favorite. I've said so so many times now, but she's one of my favorite small actors in this film because she seems to be really, really grounded, really down to earth. She was a pretty big actress at this time. She had just won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for My Left Foot with Daniel Day-Lewis. And she was the Pigeon Lady in Home Alone. Just a Mm -hmm. great role. I mean, who doesn't remember the Pigeon Lady? But so she plays the foster care mother, right? She runs the foster home. And at the press conference, She has a really good quote. She says, we all need somebody to watch out for us. Every kid needs someone to look out for them, an angel. The footprints of an angel are love. And when there is love, miracles can happen. I've seen it. And so we get this idea that this is really not at all about baseball. It's about a kid feeling like there's something that actually cares for him in a world where nobody cares for him. And last week, we talked at the end of the podcast about how I was going to focus more on the serious beats. You were going to focus more on the comedic beats. And so I want to kind of shift a little bit into the themes, the more serious side of this film, because it is kind of a serious film about kids who are in the foster care system and what that must be like to be a foster child and how transient your life is and some of the struggles and pains of being young and not really having a family.
1: It's also juxtaposed well, like you said, has all that, but it also shows, and not something I use the word oblivious, but the kids who exist in that reality still lead very normal lives like little any other kid who might have a full family. And we'll see that with Roger and JP in the beginning. They're kind of like brothers rolling around town on their bikes. And yeah, we got these really good uh, scenes, or particularly settings, where you see the settings of the or kind of a rundown city. Mm-hmm. And it's really laid out really well in the beginning of the of the movie
0: so the area around where the angels played is actually a pretty low socioeconomic area just like disneyland it's pretty interesting for those of you who have never been to orange county to actually see about a few blocks from disneyland it's literally one of the poorest neighborhoods of orange county still not that poor but it's just a really interesting juxtaposition of the two where you have all these very wealthy tourists coming in and the roughest neighborhoods of the area literally behind the walls of disneyland Similarly, the Angel Stadium is kind of in a rougher part of Anaheim. And I loved the 90s sitcom-y interior of the house. It felt so cozy. And Maggie really exuded that coziness of the maternal 90s sitcom mother. I really loved the scenes in the house. One of the characters that has such a small role, yet really resonates with me, is Miguel. Oh, me
1: too. I have a lot of stuff here from Miguel and JP's relationship that are really telling. We have, just for context, Miguel is one of the other foster kids in Maggie's care. And again, I like the setup. We have a JP, a young African-American boy. Miguel is a young Latino boy. Then we have Roger, a young Caucasian boy. And we have this dynamic where Miguel picks on JP. By pick on him, I mean he's he likes to tell him that the Jello Maggie makes really has cat brains or something like that in it. Um, One of the things I like about that is we find out Miguel might get set up with another family, another foster family. As like a source of conflict. He doesn't seem like he really wants it. And then we find out that JP just says, Well, I'll even pray for you. I hope you get that family. Like it's this really good setup where we find out, you know, Miguel is kind of the harsh, rough, tough outsider. Doesn't fit in even with this group, but JP still wants him to fit in.
0: The dinner scene really builds up JP. I felt for JP's innocence and his wholeheartedness in this scene because Miguel's being kind of a bully and a brat. He's saying you could drop dead tonight from food poisoning. And JP he is constantly being positive, right? And Miguel is really bitter because he's yearning to have a real family. And JP can even sense this. He has this sort of sixth sense he could read into people even though he's very young. He says, Maybe tomorrow you'll meet a nice family. Even though he's being picked on, being told that the Jello has cat brains and things, he's simply attuned to Miguel's pain and trying to heal him. It's such a mature thing for JP. And throughout the film, JP is naive yet pure and innocent heart of the film, right? As I said last week, right, he keeps saying it could happen and they even have George Knox say it at the end. And he's such a good sidekick for Roger. You could feel their camaraderie. They're so, for lack of a better word, adorable together, like an adorable duo.
1: They really are though. Like That's part of the charm I think of this movie is that companionship and how adorable it is. And they really play that up into all levels and particularly JP. Like even that scene with, with uh, Miguel when they're going to bed, he's getting his bed ready with rubber sheets because he still pisses the bed and it still plays into that 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 innocence really well, even though he's getting picked on, the kid making fun of him because he still pees the bed, but he still wants to tell him, you know, I'll I'll say a prayer for you. Hope you get a family. And you know, it kind of resonates really well. Like that's a good word, I think. Adorable. There's these adorable moments that still are still adorable when you watch it as an adult. Sometimes that doesn't hold up all the time, as we'll we'll talk about when we watch a lot of these '90s sports movies in particular. Some of those ones that I think were built up for the for the all the feels, they don't necessarily have the feels anymore when you go back to watch them.
0: Yeah, the big green characters have really no emotional resonance.
1: They're very flat characters and there's not any type of exigence to move them in between each other like with this one each character in angels has some sort of even maggie and Knox have an interesting relationship in this and i feel like using big green as an example we're talking about big green has some of those tropes but they're not nearly as fleshed out as they are in angels and i noticed that in my viewing too so a lot of those feels didn't really stand up in big green the way they do for me in Angels.
0: I completely agree with The Big Green. The emotional register of The Big Green is so flat. I like some things about that film still. It's kind of funny. It's kind of light. It has some pretty interesting uh, commentaries on immigration and small town poverty and things like that. But it has very little emotional resonance. Whereas this film, every character is very nuanced, very dynamic, very complex. And the relationships between each other really are economic. In the sense it's a weird term economic, but they have very little interaction. You know, it's only an hour and a forty minutes, and they have to build this really deep layered world of pain and being left out of the system being without parents and they do such a good job of making you feel for these characters and making you see how george knox needs both roger and jp as much as roger and jp need george knox which makes it a great ending to the film when they end up being adopted by george knox you see how maggie is this perfect balance of nurturing yet detachment because she knows that she's only a temporary parent. And you see how she treats George Knox with both respect and a little bit of cynicism because she doesn't want the boys to become too attached to even a father figure. You see the relationship between Miguel, JP, and Roger and how it's hard to build friendships when you're constantly changing homes. All of this is really built into a small time. And we've already talked about the fact that George Knox has the competition with the Ranch Wilder, and then you have yeah. the players um, and their dynamic. There's just a lot of character development in a very short time in this film. They do a yeah. pretty good job. I would say the only other 90s kid sports film that comes close to this, or maybe is as good as this, is Mighty Ducks, specifically yeah. Mighty Ducks 1. I know you love Mighty Ducks too for the connection to LA, but in terms of emotional re- resonance, it Doesn't hold as much for me. And this film and Mighty Ducks 1 really have some depth to the characters.
1: So, JP is a great character for a number of reasons, but for me, one of the things that stood out watching this now is the way he kind of serves to help, serves as a catalyst for, for this movie. Uh, We don't really know if Roger's religious at all in this. In fact, Maggie talks about times where she says he's really grounded in reality, which doesn't say he's not religious, right? But she has this notion that he knows the real world. But then we get that scene where he prays, makes that basically the wish upon the star scene. And as we talked about before, that comes after the dinner with Miguel and JP getting picked on by Miguel. But also after we've seen that whole day of them hanging out together where JP tells him it could happen. The movie starts out with JP asking, do you think heaven do you believe in heaven and we get the explanation of you know one parent's in heaven one's not maybe our parents are friends in heaven right these all serve as little like building blocks i think that inspire roger to eventually pray in my read of this text um so in that regard jp's a very complex character more than just one-liners those one-liners i think build up to a larger you know cinematic climax in this in this movie and also his depths even expanded more when he meets george knox and we see him kind of Get scared of the van, right? Do um, you want to take that? Why, why is he scared of the van?
0: Yeah, he's scared of the van because they say that he was once curled up like a cat in the van. And so suddenly you get this funny scene where George Knox has to drive them home in the team's uh, bus, right, instead mm-hmm. of a, a smaller van. But it's just this very short side comment that really illuminates a sort of darkness lurking behind the scenes of these characters.
1: Each character has a type of trauma that they bring, and it's not flagrant. But we get those, like you said, those little like tidbits through these, like some of these lines. And it still ties together very well comedically because that part where he brings the bus around still very funny. The idea that he caters to his need with such a grand gesture and that, you know, JP appreciates it, appreciates it, but he's still scared to thank him. It still plays up very well with that trauma.
0: It does. I like that you point out how quickly it moves from a emotional seriousness to... Comedy, and it really does balance the two. It doesn't ever feel jarring when it mm-hmm. flows between the two. And one second you are literally feeling for these characters, the next second you have like a nice little laugh.
1: You're still laughing at the joke because of, like you said, the seriousness seriousness behind it. It's a it's a ser- <laughs> it's a serious topic. You know, he's he's he grew up homeless, living in a car. But we, like you said, you, c- you can find that humor in it when he can, shows up with that grand gesture.
0: Yeah, he has this really dark past, but then in order to to empathize with it, George Knox is willing to take the van and drive them to their little kind of poor. Rundown home. Going over to the comedic elements, we talked a little bit about the serious elements. I think we should talk about the team because the real comedy is a lot of visual comedy. What are some of your favorite funny moments throughout the baseball?
1: Uh, when I think about this of uh, the baseball scenes, I'm going to go with one that doesn't have angels, which you know it's angels in the outfield. We want to focus on the angels, but I think the bench brawl in the beginning is just classic baseball, classic sports movie, classic hardball coach, bunch of losers, right? Here's their chance to fight. And then when the other coach comes out and tells, them, hey guys, it's a brawl between them. We're not, we're not in this one. Loved it. Still love it.
0: Yeah, what's so funny is usually the brawl in a sports movie is always between opponents and you have that opposing bench running onto the field and then once the other coach yells at them and says hey guys stop it they all stop and realize wait this isn't our brawl <laughs> right it's just their natural instinct
1: yeah this functionality of the team is just displayed in that one scene very well because you even see all the guys when they go fight they're all kind of like oh we're gonna go do this again <laughs> like you know this isn't the first time this has happened I, I, I get out of this you know it really builds up George Knox's character he's willing to go beat up his own players and that really pays off well when we when you see him punch Jay <laughs> which is another funny scene,
0: another <gasps> funny scene.
1: I, I love George Knox he's such a caveman in
0: this. <laughs> they also have the scene with George Knox at the very beginning when we introduce him walking into the locker room, and the first thing he does is throw the table filled with food on it. And that's when we get that great shot. One of the funny shots for me, at least as a kid, it's not that funny as an adult, but the salami rolls and the catcher catches it on his foot. You gotta have a fat catcher on your baseball team. <laughs> you gotta have a fat catcher, right? Or a fat goalie. Um, so it's a fat catcher or a fat goalie. So you have that silly archetype as well of that fat catcher. But you have George Knox who's kind of a screw loose and a hothead with a heart underneath, of course, because we end up looking in George Knox, but George Knox doesn't really get in too much trouble for punching the broadcaster. Today, that would probably end his career. But then, when he believes in a kid who has faith in the team and supposedly sees angels, the owner believes this enough and somehow thinks it's a bad PR move enough that he threatens to fire George Knox or remove him. Um, that's just a very, very odd incongruity to me. It doesn't really make sense in my brain. I think the best comedic parts personally have to do with the angels and have to do with the fans and the scene with the angels in this in the stadium specifically Al and I can't believe we've gotten this far but we haven't brought up Al Christopher Lloyd kills it in this role of Al it's a small role but he's so eccentric and he's just so Christopher Lloyd that he puts a smile on your face every time and he has a lot of funny moments where he turns into this reoccurring extra it's this kind of chubby guy always wearing the Tank top, and we always see a close-up of him, which is a staple of Disney films, where you get this fan or extra who never actually says a thing, but they are a reoccurring comedic punchline in some degree. Yeah. And there's a scene where Al enters him, and that's really funny. Al enters the soda; it's really funny. And then, as I said before, you get the PR guy and the constant spilling of the nachos on him, where he at first is wearing a nice suit, and then he's wearing a raincoat, and by the end of the film, he's wearing that hazmat suit. And I just <laughs> I like love, the- yeah, I love that progression that but- when he wears that hazmat suit, it's really funny for me.
1: And that progression still builds up very well, even with the other character you point out, the fatter dude at the ballpark. All those build up so well when we get the giant angel wave, and those are guys that those are guys that make you laugh during the wave, right? We have one who's toothless, right? And that's from that one scene where he gets over with a ball and that's he doesn't say a word, right? Just smiles and gives you a grin. And then we get uh David DeGroen's character when he has that really hilarious just smile of the wind, totally cheesy it up. But yeah.
0: Another funny thing to me is actually not supposed to be funny. But this is one thing I noticed in my last viewing was the shots of the crowd is actually really poorly done. I kept noticing that they would have extreme close-ups of the crowd if they wanted any actor in it. And you could actually see in the top left corner of the film that the stadium was kind of empty. They didn't actually hire enough extras. And then they would go to these sweeping shots that were so obviously taken from another actual baseball game where the lighting is different and the place is packed. I was just dying. I was loving that. I can't believe it, but Disney was stingy. didn't hire enough extras. And so have these really jarring clashes of the close-up shots where you have the actors and you could see that it's very bright in daytime. (laughs) and that the audience is not actually full and these are later on in the season when there is starting to become momentum and people are starting to show up then you have these wide shots of everyone doing the wave (laughs) I just thought small little nitpicky thing but I was I was having a kick out of that I've been having a kick out of noticing a lot of those so those are my either intentional or not funny moments Uh, there's also a few funny moments in the actual play of baseball that we haven't brought up one entails that play with 17 errors. What do you think about that play? I, I actually love that play. It's a lot of kid slapsticky humor. You get the guy hitting the nuts, you get the ball on the bat, you get him swinging around with his glove, hitting all the players. It's just so slapsticky. Uh,
1: another scene that I liked was the baseball scene in the neighborhood. When George Knox comes and we get like a little neighborhood ball game, it's kind of like a little mini Sandlot. It's like five minutes of Sandlot that you get in this movie where it's a bunch of kids you've never seen before but it's all those uh cliche children stereotypes of baseball players you have the kid who doesn't know the rules hits a home run they say run home he runs home which still made me laugh then also even the fat kid hitting a home run quintessential 90s kid big chubby boy who can hit a home run you have to have that in your movie I found that really interesting that they found a way to squeeze that in this movie this isn't a scene that even needs to be in this for you to still believe George Knox wants to adopt them, that they'd still be a happy family in the end it's It just, it's there to kind of serve that visual cue that this is still a movie for kids, kids who play baseball. And I found that to me watching it this time, it stood out because this is a movie about kids playing baseball. It's not at all integral integral to the plot, but this had to be
0: in there. I think that Disney always tries to get in a little tiny propaganda in not a negative sense, but for kids to play sports. I think there's always a little bit of that, like where it's a little bit of a motivational uh, underlying theme of their sports films is that kids should be playing these sports. And so I think they wanted to get that in there as well.
1: As I look at it now, I don't know if I think it was effective as this, but it's kind of given Roger and JP the playing baseball with their fathers that they never got to, right? I think that's what it's supposed to do, but I'm not sure highlighted enough for it to be that effective with a scene
0: like that. Everything between them and George Knox is kind of like what it would be like with a father. And so that's just a quick little moment where you see an insight of where, when the film ends, what it's going to be like, where they're going to have a father to play baseball with them on the street or to organize the game and to mm-hmm. just be there as a positive influence in their lives. As you pointed out too, there's all sorts of different types of kids. There's the chubby kid who hits the home run. There's the kid who's not smart enough and actually runs home, takes it literally. Like all Disney films, this film also has all demographics. We've already touched on this a bit with the foster home. We have a Hispanic kid. We have African-American kid. We have white kid. I don't believe there's any Asians, but usually there's an Asian on the team as well. And I was surprised in 94 that they were so woke i thought this was a new thing with disney of being really woke with all of the pressure put on the oscars you know oscars so white that they were being even with especially with their marvel films making sure every demographic is met and that there's a wide representation but i'm really impressed watching all these films again that disney has representation in almost all these films even though they are kind of the token asian kid on the mighty ducks team the fact that they do get an asian kid on these mighty ducks films or that they bring in miguel in this film he doesn't have a big part but he has a pretty substantial part and and I, it is definitely a pretty woke film all in all the prayer is even really woke right uh, i'll let you talk about the prayer yeah. really quickly
1: it sounds like a standard prayer and then it ends he ends his prayer like you end a prayer with amen but then he stops and he goes oh we're all women in case you're a woman which is really like a poignant moment it stands out to me like rogers is woke gender inclusive nine-year-old <laughs> like even <laughs> when he prays you know he doesn't know if god exists but if it might be a woman like i'm, I'm gonna cover my bases so I, I thought that was really interesting like i didn't catch that as at all as many times as i watched that growing
0: up i never caught that either until this one and when i heard that i was like whoa they were ahead of the curve and it has to do with their image they're wholesome they want to be inclusive and and there are a lot of reasons business-wise that i'm not a big kind of disney but they definitely have a pure intention with their kids films that is hard to sustain and they really stick by that and with so much negativity constantly in the world it's nice to have that positivity in the secular segment of society right disney's basically a religion but a positive one has these very core family values and they're pro diversity they're pro gender equality they're definitely always trying to be inclusive and push equality one of the funny things i did notice about the film is how little baseball was actually in it and i Not saying this is a knock on the film because I think that they really did a good job getting into the more important issues like the foster care system and the role of a child and a father and even young kids who need that camaraderie and friendship and need some stability in their lives. These are more important themes for me. But there really wasn't that much baseball. Maybe there was maybe three games. They never went on the road it seemed. We have the quintessential montage where we get a lot of newspapers with the headlines that tell us that the Angels are starting to win. They're really starting to come along. We see their spirits start to lift. But I was really a little bummed out that there was so little actual baseball and so little scenes with the Angels lifting players up and doing miraculous things. What did you think about the season and how the season was depicted?
1: Well, I agree with you that it stands out that there's not a lot of games played. And like you said, it's mostly explained through montage. For me, I I think it's effective because I think the montage gets us to where we need to get to because I'm with you. I like the more larger themes. And those montages do show them winning. We see some of the quirks of the characters in there. Like we'll get into a little bit of Matthew McConaughey character, each one they showed, we get a little bit of quirk. What's out to me is we don't get any sense of the team itself. There's scenes in the locker room, but there's no locker room identity. Like we get, I'll use like Mighty Ducks as an example. There's a locker room banter, locker room identity in that movie, any given Sunday, etc. Right? This one, when we get that giant moment where they're going to come together and stand behind George Knox, that's the moment when the team first comes together, actually, even in the film. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, because it doesn't detract from the purpose of this, of this movie, but in the depiction of sports and our depiction of, you know, sports play and and again going back to the idea that what this movie is going to preach you, know, you have to believe in your team to win that's kind of asking a lot for a team that never really developed that team bond on screen.
0: The interesting thing is that the team is secondary to the two young boys and the coach and so the film does a decent enough job of making the players have at least one key attribute and it also does enough that we have at least one player where we have a real strong emotional bond with and we haven't talked to I don't think enough about this role and that's Tony Danza's role as the washed up pitcher who's injured a lot and literally on the last leg of square and also the last year of his life which is another quick I just gotta throw this in there thing that hit me I didn't remember and I thought it was totally not okay it was probably one of my biggest gripes with so the film is why they needed to suddenly tell us in the last game of the year that Tony Danza is going to die in six months because he uh, smoked a little too much and not only that they, they have the angel Al tell Roger is beyond me it doesn't really have a place it's too tragic there's too much pathos and i just don't understand
1: even as a kid that rang to me as such a a dare moment in the movie it was a dare ad it was that don't do don't smoke because smoking will kill you it was literally him saying that to a Even as a kid, that always stood out to me is like, he's going to die because he smoked. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I agree with you. What athlete at their prime is going to die six months from that? Like, I mean, yeah, that's definitely, it stands out as a a wink to the audience for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. They got a few bucks behind the scenes from ambassadors of (laughs) Dare. Now, the only thing that kind of redeems it is that Dare was also such a 90s thing. Uh, Mm It brings me back to sitting in the auditorium for an assembly where we get. An hour lecture from the local DARE representative. <laughs> um, so anyways, yeah, that threw me off. But I think despite that scene, Tony Danza has some depth. You feel for him on a level that isn't simply silly. He is the big figure of the climactic game. We get the team coming together in the press conference room. We get the season in which they become optimistic and filled with confidence through the montages. But the only player that I feel like has any true arc is Tony Danza. Yeah, I wish that they had more time to build, flesh out more players, but they don't in this film. And that's okay with me as well.
1: For me, even though Tony Danza doesn't have much screen time and he is one of the more fleshed out characters, it's weirdly enough the idea that they give him this death sentence, I think is the only way we feel that way. Because other than that, the only scene we get from him is kind of a comedy scene when JP and Roger are going to go get their photo taken. And JP immediately goes up to him and says, you used to be Mel Clark? And it's that joke, like he doesn't realize he's washed up, right? And that sets a tone like he's a washed up baseball player. But for most of the movie, he's absent until he gets a chance to pitch. And then we get the death sentence. So then we're kind of riding along because that gives us, I guess, something to care about for those last nine innings that this dude pitches, right? So, I guess in that regard, it works. Otherwise, that last scene doesn't have quite as much tension other than them needing to win the game. But I guess if he's playing for his life, there's something on the line there.
0: You just literally transported my mind back to my first experience of the film. I have to retract a little what I said, at least the eight or seven year old me had a lot of significance taken from the fact that he was going to die. I completely remember now really rooting for him and feeling very sad in a sincere way that he was going to die. Now I feel like it's this exploitative and manipulative narrative, yeah. it, but it worked for me then. So, you know, it and I was the prime demographic. That so. will
1: take me to the next point. Cause interesting. seeing another. I kind of want to go with Mel Clark cause he is important and like the way he's fleshed out is interesting because it's not much but i guess it's there because that goes into like the press conference scene because i believe he's the the voice of voices in that scene at least he to me he stands out as that one right i believe he's the first one up if i remember correctly
0: and that's the kind of classic moment where you have a moment where everyone suddenly comes together and finds that unity and that's that moment i think tony dand is the first one who sticks up for george knox and says well if he believes in angels I believe in them too or something along those lines and then suddenly the whole like, we'll
1: play for any other coach but George Knox Because so I think they'll do a very good job of being very secular about where or not they be- the players believe in angels even in that scene good point it goes back to the root of belief somehow it comes back to the team movement at the end of that unless about the larger philosophical issue
0: yeah and somehow Maggie has a big say too right and she's able to yeah. she's able to qualify it maybe angels mm-hmm. don't believe but is it so bad to believe in them basically what we're all thinking right what's the big deal she even
1: qualifies in sports term right? she gives a great example of uh, do you mock a football player and he touches down the end zone and prays to God for helping him. And she gives these very poignant examples, particularly to the culture, which I think is really strong in that, in that regard of that scene, right? She's this outsider coming in to speak, but she still
0: speaks with that language. Yes, and it's such an apt analogy she brings up. Like I said earlier, there's superstitions in sports that are embedded in the culture, specifically in baseball, where players tend to always run off and touch the base between innings, or they will not jump or step on the line. Players like to spit on their gloves before batting they think it's jinx to share about you can go down the line but there's so many different superstitions within baseball within all of sports and so the idea that believing in angels is somehow so heretical and transgressive that it warrants this big media hoopla is kind of absurd what isn't absurd though is the fact that these are televised baseball games and physicists would be having a heyday these moments in which Matthew McConaughey leaps and stays airbound for about 10 seconds. Now that is is something to debate, which we already touched on, right? But we have Jose Canseco and his steroids use becoming a huge deal in the MLB soon after. And the college humor bit that came out a few years ago, really aptly shows that the angels could possibly be incorporated into that controversy. So, really quickly, there's a very funny 30 by 30 parody where we have a lot of the actors like McDonough and Milton Davis, who plays JP in their current selves, deadpanning a documentary style revisiting of their run to win the pennant. And they talk about the angels. And then it ends at the very last few scenes with them being on deposition. Having to stand before court and say that they were not cheating through the aid of the angels helping them out. And I just thought that was a really funny little bit and taps into this question were they cheating or were they not? Which we have already touched upon, but it's something that I think is more interesting than whether George Knox even believes in them or not is if these angels are there and we have this video proof, is it cheating? And what is the MLB going to do about it? Problem with that is it becomes too complex, right? It's too serious, so it doesn't move the narrative. So this works.
1: Yeah, that, that is definitely how the film's like logic works, and it's it is a fine viewing experience. But it works fine up until that press conference scene. For whatever reason, I think no matter how you watch it, the press conference scene complicates the premise of the movie. My question is the marketing degree. If I was the owner of the Angels and the Angels are playing baseball on my team, I'd be come see the Angels, people. <laughs> like, I'd have put that on all the seats. I'd, I'd have had those angel robes before the final game. <laughs> I'd have been opposite. My press conference would have been releasing this. Mate. Come see him, Evangelicals. You know, that, that would have been me. But.
0: <laughs> that would have been me too. That's why I don't like it. I was in my head really protesting the entire time. Why is this owner having a problem with this? And I'm even thinking of that scene where JP has to reveal the angels to a very manipulative Ranch Wilder. The fact that Ranch Wilder even thinks that this is a major story that's going to take down George Knox and take down the angels just doesn't work for me. None of it works for me. If I was the owner, I would do the same thing as you did. I would promote the hell out of this and fill up stands with people trying to witness the most miraculous thing that would have ever been seen. Why they went the other way is completely beyond me. After the press conference, though, we get the team sticking up for George Knox. We get the unification of the team, garnering public support, getting the momentum and taking them to the last game in which they are either going to win the pennant or not. And there's a very curious narrative thing that happens here as well. And it's that the Angels suddenly have a new sort of logic. In the last game, they are not going to help the team. Now, what did you think about this logic? This is another very confounding moment of angel logic for me.
1: I always thought like they they're they're willing to cheat up until a line and then they just stopped. <laughs> like if if we play this game this game is more important than the other so that would be cheating and so it's always how i read that even growing up i I felt like i felt like they they cleverly got out of it themselves like we didn't cheat for the championship so if you get the championship it still counts maybe in the 30 for 30 documentary they get off on the deposition trial because they didn't play the last game like i don't know
0: yeah they don't really go there in that documentary there's a lot of funny things in that documentary um but they don't actually go there (laughs) it is
1: a funny thing I'm sorry to cut you out there, but it's funny when you think about it because like you said, they randomly stop. It's just We're stopping today. We don't play in these games. You're on your own. But the last line of the movie is we're always watching. <laughs> always find that like that that inner interplay, like watching and intervening.
0: Exactly. And I found it a little creepy as well, but <laughs> that's just me. Um, we already have Santa Claus watching us all the time and now we have these angels too.
1: You have Doc Brown watching you specifically.
0: And actually possibly adhering to your wish, even if it's as petty as a baseball team winning, So now you're going to be wasting too much time praying to the Angels. I just, I don't like the Angel logic too much, especially that last game. Because suddenly, though they've assisted them the entire season and basically rigged the games based off of supernaturally handicapping every game, no longer can they morally help teams win the big game. So they have to sit this one out. Same time, I think that my counter argument is a little facetious because it does work in this sense. It works in the sense that what the angels were. Is a force that united them and gave them faith, and it's the belief that's more important. And it's when Danny Glover goes out to the mound to talk to Mel um, when he needs to just throw a few more pitches to get that last strikeout, and he says, "You got an angel with you right now, and he's going to help." And we know that no angel is out there, but the power of belief. So that is actually a really strong moment. Even just speaking it out loud, I'm flipping my mind, and this <laughs> logic is so silly. But I go back and forth, I vacillate, and I. I think it does work because it's tight in the sense that the whole point of the angels wasn't to cheat, but it was to bring him to this moment where the stakes were high and where they now have the power of positive psychology to lead them to victory without any assistance. So it's basically like all they were was training wheels and now they're riding the bike on their own. I think it works in that way.
1: I agree. It works with the sentimentality part of it. Yes. You want the last game to be pure. Even it reminds me of that scene reminds me of like rookie of the year, the last game of that one, which I haven't seen in a while, but that's essentially the game where he doesn't have his fastball anymore. Right. I remember and the team has to play around him and builds on all those same values. but that movie doesn't depreciate the fact that he had a fastball. Small rocket that got them there, right? It acknowledges that through through and through. And it's it's a core part of it. It's 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 explored. But again, the that moment when they rally behind him is different than in angel. So in that regard, I'm kind of with you. It's very functional for the sake of the plot and for the period of the game. But I think as a larger, broader perspective, it's kind of a dumb rule.
0: Yes, I, I think we could agree on that. I think that's our consensus is that the angel logic in a broader sense makes no sense. But in the screenplay, it works perfectly. And these screenwriters very effectively play the themes so that that as preposterous as it is, these themes are sound in this film.
1: And going back to as cheesy as it is, because I do think it does work as a crescendo to the end when you get the giant angel wave. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. Very cheesy, but very effective. It kind of, I think it does a great job of bringing all this giant cast together for, again, that one quintessential moment, but it works very well. Like we already talked about with the dude with the missing teeth, the personal assistant, when he has that great smile with all the gear on, right? That moment is what it's building up to, and I think it does land, even as an adult when you go back to watch it.
0: Yeah, that lands 100%. The moment where Joseph Gordon-Levitt walks onto the field and waves his arms is such an iconic moment. The other thing that really works in this last game, beyond. That, that is you get the great downfall of our announcer, the evil Ranch Wilder, right? I love the scenes between Ranch Wilder and his co-host. Uh-huh. Throughout the film, he is such a jerk that keeps flipping off his announcer's mic, silencing him every chance he gets. And then he has an assistant who's also a woman. This is another very woke thing where he's extremely rude to her. And they're trying to say that this man in power is extremely abusive of his power. And that's why it's the great comeuppance at the end when the owner comes in after the Angels win. And the first thing he does is he fires the announcer. I just love that ending in which the co-host finally flips on the broadcast to his end. I just want to map this out for people listening who haven't seen the film recently. It's basically, if you don't know announcers, at least in this time, I don't know much about broadcasting booths, but they had a little kind of toggle that they would flip, which means they got to have the air without the overlapping of audio between the two, so he finally flips it to his side and the people who were being belittled and picked on have now finally been given their voice and i think that is a very nice parallel to the team this scheme of losers who are the joke of the league have now risen to become something
1: yeah i agree and like you said it's wrapped up very nicely in the end and by nicely i mean it comes back in a good way for our secondary broadcaster who is like i agree that he's one of the funnier characters in this movie because of his role with with, uh, Jay.
0: Yeah, and Jay is just perfectly vilified throughout the film by just the little things he does. And just one more point on the broadcasting aspect is that perhaps there's an anti-drinking nod, just like there's an anti-smoking nod. Uh, Ranch Wilder has a habit of pouring booze into his coffee, and so I just want to point that out, that as the obviously vilified character, Disney was giving a wink that drinking is not okay. And I really loved the way that it ends not with baseball, but with the scene in which George Knox reveals that he's going to adopt J.P. and Roger. I really love that moment on J.P.'s face when he realizes it. He's just so happy. And what I remember as a kid is not so much that they were getting a dad even, but that they were going to remain friends. Because there was this looming possibility, especially with Miguel. And that's why, he, once again, he's such a great character, right? And midway through the <laughs> film, Miguel gets picked up in another home. And it's a very sad moment, a bittersweet moment. You're happy for Miguel but you're sad that he's leaving. And this scene, you realized that they're going to stick together, that they are going to be brothers, is just really heartwarming. What do you think about the ending?
1: I like the part when, Jay, before JP knows Knox is gonna be his dad when he runs away crying because Roger's not gonna live with him anymore. It kind of goes with what you said. It really brings into that that temporariness of the of that environment that the scene takes place in. And then bringing it, unifying as a whole where there's their family within that environment, and then they're gonna leave. So I really did like that. Again, because it has a comedy element mixed with the seriousness. Again, like we talked about, it, I think for mo- for both of us, it seems like a lot of the movies that we liked are the parts outside the baseball field. So I agree, like it has to come back to that home. It should end in the home. But I love the part when JP actually sees L before he flies away at the very end. Yeah, the idea that, for me, a big question as I'm watching this now is why isn't JP going to see the angels? The kid who has the most faith, most blind faith, if you want to call that, the best outlook. I always love the scenes when he's trying to see the angels and he can't. They make those really funny too. But then when he actually does see L and L getting that really, really great wink and he has that, great cheese ball smile. Um, it's the definition of a heartworm.
0: I think somehow it works. I don't even know how to put my finger on it, but it somehow works to me that he doesn't see the angels because he has so much faith and optimism. He almost doesn't need to.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Whereas Roger does because Roger's a little more cynical or he can go either way still. It just feels like JP is the spirit that brings the angels and Roger's the one who needs the angels. And so he doesn't need to see the angels because he's already, he's already enlightened. Now that we've tackled almost everything about this film that I think we're going to tackle today, what did the critics think about it? And that is one of the funny things with these movies. So in my memory, I would think that this would be in the upper 80s, maybe 70s. I thought this film was, of course, childish in some ways and silly, but overall, it had enough heart and feel-good moments that people wouldn't be so cynical to give it bad reviews. But it only has a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let me note that there isn't very many reviews, so it's not a huge pool that they are getting this percentage from. But overall, the reception of professional critics was negative. What surprises me almost even more is that the audience was only a 49%. I would think the audience would be in the 80s or 90s to be honest. I thought this would be a film where the critics pan and the audiences love but apparently it's not beloved by either the critics or the audiences though there are some serious fans out there like ourselves and first I want to bring up a few quotes that I found from professional critics and even though I disagree with their final take on the film I enjoyed some of their opinions and illuminations. It's hard to find a lot of reviews back in the day that talked about Angels in the Outfield and the big names are the only ones I could find. So there is Siskel and Ebert that we have to consult with on their opinions. And Siskel's was very short and pithy. And he said, this is formula movie making, period. See Little Big League instead. Obviously, he's wrapped up in his profession, which is seeing a ton of films. And he's seeing way too many child-based sports movies. And he's inundated with this genre that is a little formulaic and repetitive. And it all comes out in a very bitter, pithy statement and he gives it a one out of four. I still don't understand how he can be so heartless but you know if he's having a bad day, he's seen too many of these movies, perhaps he just tuned out and gave it a bad review. Ebert though has a lot more to say and some of the things we've even touched upon. For Ebert, he tends to take these child-based sports movies with a little bit more of a grain of salt and at least has some fun writing his reviews. He also pokes fun at the logic of the film and he says quote, isn't it insulting to request God even take an interest in baseball? End quote. Then he riffs about where angels stand in 90s pop culture and how they've kind of lost their stature over the centuries. And I love this quote. He brings up John Milton, and he says, Milton saw them shaking the heavens, but in our trivializing times, angels have been downgraded to starring roles in greeting cards and pop songs. This movie is a good career move. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, Basically, he's seeing how angels have been more and more trivialized, and even though he ends up calling it a dumb movie of soppy sentimentality, he sees it as a good career move, and that they're actually uplifting and redemptive archetype in this film, whereas they're strictly commercial and other aspects of contemporary culture circa 1994. Now, I don't agree with this comment on Soppy sentimentality. I think that film is very sentimental, but the sentimentality is pitch perfect for the most part. That said, for wit and acerbic humor, his review is a gem. So I'll let you take some of the audience reviews we've plucked from the infinite depths of the internet. So
1: Jake Cole had this to say about his experience watching Angels in the Outfield. An entire movie predicated on a child's inability to understand a shitty dad's shitty sarcasm. Rachel Scola had this to say about the boom, Iconic, imagine if we had a synonymous movie for every team. Cubs running after players, swarm of giants in San Francisco, a family of Philly fanatics like the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia crew, ghost of Davy Jones in Pittsburgh, Hollywood, please call me. Paul the Martin had this to say, great cast and crew goes a long way to make this extremely saccharine remake into an ultra rewatchable piece of nostalgia. And then Kobe simply said, the cool dad sucks. Finally, Rohan said this, not the greatest movie, but definitely wholesome.
0: Personally, I really think that Rohan ends it on a pretty good note. I can see his take. It isn't, in a serious manner, the greatest movie of all time, but it's definitely wholesome. This film is rewatchable as well. It's extremely saccharine, but very heartwarming as we've... Heartwarming
1: also holds a unique place in the baseball pantheon, just because of its conceit of angels the supernatural gives it i think worth of view on that on that alone
0: yeah it has a unique place in the pantheon it has a unique unique take and approach it has likable characters it really launched a bunch of careers joseph gordon levitt uh basically broke from this film he had a huge career on tv in third rock from the sun he even teamed up again uh, a few decades later in don john where he wrote and directed this film um playing a kind of likable but sleazy young guido figure from new jersey Um, i just wanted to point this film out specifically because tony danza in that film is his dad a little bit of a reunion you also get a very early matthew mcconaughey and adrian brody so that's just a fun little pop cultural trivia thing to see because they have almost no roles in this film Besides those little tiny peripheral things, this movie was a great Disney film, a great 90s film. What are your final takes? My final takes is that even though as an adult there was some small things that didn't really play out as clean or soundly as they did when I was a kid, I still bought into it and really felt paid off in every way. And these characters are timeless characters. They're great characters. And I just want to hear what's your final take on this movie.
1: I agree. Definitely rewatchable. Love the characters. Nostalgia bar obviously hit that. It's worth a watch because I think there's more going on than initially meets the eye.
0: Yeah. So I think our consensus is that it holds up. And so that takes us to our choice, which we've already foreshadowed a little too clearly. But would you call this an underdog or an overrated film? Underdog. Yeah, for me too. It's an underdog and it deserves it wholeheartedly. So next week we are going to look at yet another 90s Disney film that I've already recently seen and taken notes on and I'm excited to talk about and I believe you watched it as well. So we're knee deep or even chest deep into 90s children's sports movies already. And our next one is one I might've watched more than any other. The VHS was always sitting Prominently on my shelf, and that is the big green. Any excitement or anticipation that you have towards the big green that you want to talk about, real quick, before we sign off?
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about small town life in America in the 90s.
0: I am as well. I want to explore how actually relevant a lot of the subtexts and subplots in that film are today, and how serious a lot of the subplots are, and see where it stands in comparison to others like angels and the mighty ducks so i am excited for that conversation and i'll see you next week all right have a good one
1: later